This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then from 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment. Or sorry, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Can I get a sound check thumbs up? All right. One second here. Okay. Okay. Um, a couple weeks back, um, we introduced our our new theme, um, which is uh, what you see on the screen right now: fellowship, life together in light of God's love. <clears throat> and this, of course, is inspired by. 1 John 4, 19, uh, a verse which is very simple but profound. It runs in all directions, ethically, theologically, morally, um, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and it's the latter that we're going we're gonna to focus on in 2021. <clears throat> we love one another uh, because he first loved us. So last week, we looked at the opening paragraph of uh, the letter of 1 John, where uh, John uh, calls uh, his readers both to fellowship with God uh, and fellowship with fellow Christians. And there we saw three fundamental truths about fellowship. Um, folks may call uh, it by any number of names, but I would suggest that fellowship is something that all human beings uh, want. All human beings actually crave. Uh, we can't live without it. Uh, it may vary in the degree to which we need it, but we all need uh, social uh, interaction. We need, we need relationship. We need what the Bible would call fellowship. And more than that, for anyone who wants a relationship with God, uh, fellowship with other people is a, a necessary uh, condition. As we put it last week, horizontal fellowship is um, the, the sine qua non of vertical fellowship. Without the one, you don't have the other. So it's wonderful then that because of Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, genuine fellowship is actually a possibility for human beings. So it's really crucial. It's really central to our life as Christ followers. But right out of the gate, in the very next paragraph of his letter, John, in the letter 1 John, shows us that fellowship is not something that is automatic. Um, it's hardly the default mode of human society or human interaction. While fellowship is still in John's sights in this next par 
paragraph, you'll notice that he quickly pivots and begins to alert them to the challenges that will always threaten true fellowship. And John points out that just because we, we talk the, the talk of fellowship doesn't mean that we're walking the walk. And so <clears throat> uh, this is the paragraph that we looked at last week. Uh, he wants them to have fellowship with them, with other Christians, as well as with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the second paragraph where he instantly pivots and says, still talking about, as you can see in bold here, fellowship with him and fellowship one with one another, but begins to talk about problems, uh, challenges, threats to genuine fellowship. And there's a kind of verbal formula that's used repeatedly in uh, 1 John that pits our, our walk against our talk. He says, we can make claims, we can say certain things that we believe in or ascribe to, or, um, you know, uh, conduct ourselves according to as Christians. And then there's our conduct, which are not always walking hand in hand. So for instance, in 1 John 1, 6, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in a different way, um, we're walking in darkness. Uh, NIV uses the word claim for these verbs. If we claim X, but we don't do X, then that's invalidated. We're still in darkness. We are deceiving ourselves. We're making God a liar. You can plug in, uh, you know, the predicate to this, but over and over, 1 John 1, 8, if we say, but then he contracts, uh, contrasts that with the reality of how, what our conduct looks like. Verse 10, if we say X, but we don't do X, uh, then that's all invalidated. Down in chapter two, whoever says, but if they live a different way, um, then the result is going to be different. And over in chapter four, even. So this is something that John is having us think about, that the claims of Christian life versus the conduct of Christians uh, are, are what we have to think about critically, especially if we're going to achieve anything close to genuine fellowship, the kind that uh, God's word would lay out for us. And so the upshot of all this is that we need to be vigilant. Um, we, we need to be uh, intentional and, and proactive about this. Fellowship is not unlike democracy. Uh, they are both fragile. Um, fellowship must be intentionally nurtured. It must be prioritized. The processes that maintain it have to be respected and actually practiced. Because fellowship is so crucial for God's people, there's little chance and we can see this right here in 1 John 1, in the opening paragraphs, there's little chance that it will not be challenged and threatened by our adversary. He's going to contest it because it is so beautiful, so precious, and it lies right at the heart of all that we are as God's people. So last week, we talked about the fundamentals, some fundamentals of fellowship. Today, I want to talk about some foes of fellowship, some enemies of fellowship. First one of these is disregard for God's commandments, disregard for God's word. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through five and 6, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, here, there's, there's the formula. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I want you to notice here that our fellowship with God is contingent on walking with him, walking precisely in the light, not in the darkness. God is light. And so to walk in his light 
can lead to blessings like fellowship. But if we're walking in darkness, it's not going to work. And that idea is developed even further down in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, where he says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. It's 1 John 2, 3 through 6. So if we just scorn his commandments or, or uh, flout his commandments, then we really don't know God. We don't really have a relationship with God. We may say we do, right? But John says we're actually a liar in verse 4. Fellowship with God is for the person who keeps his word, all right? Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep it, 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 it is a liar, uh, but whoever keeps his word, make a mental note of that phrase, keeping God's word. But now I want you to note something else from 1 John 1, 5 through 7. <clears throat> and that is that fellowship with him, you know, when we do walk in the light, not only does that follow a foster fellowship with him, with God, but we also will enjoy fellowship with one another, fellowship with him, fellowship with one another. Again, First John always toggles back and forth seamlessly between the two. Um, it repeats what we saw in last week's lesson in the letter or from the letter's opening paragraph that vertical and horizontal fellowship are indivisible. Here, uh, John R.W. Stott, um, a, a writer I used to read after a lot, he's passed away now, a, a British uh, writer, <clears throat> commenting on uh, this in the epistles in his uh, commentary on First uh, John. He says, fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers. It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. So John could not have written, quote, that you also may have fellowship with us without also adding, quote, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Since our fellowship with each other arises from and depends upon our fellowship with God. Well, how does disregarding God's commands undermine fellowship among fellow human beings? I think one answer has to be a very simple one, and that is that sin breaks fellowship with God. Sin breaks fellowship with God, and God is the ultimate source of all fellowship whether it's vertical or horizontal. So when we, when we don't follow God's word, when we sin against God, when we disobey or disregard or uh, fail to consult his word, really, like in, in terms of our walk, not just our talk, um, in terms of our behavior and our conduct, then fellowship is going to be in jeopardy because we're breaking relationship, at least potentially with God, and he is the source of all fellowship. And that really echoes what Jesus prayed uh, to the Father on the night before his death in John 17, he said, I do not ask for these only, meaning you know, fellow his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would mean us and all the other uh, disciples to follow uh, the life of Jesus and his immediate 12. Well, what's his prayer? Verse 21, it's this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So he says the same unity 
that's in, enjoyed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, in, in the Godhead, in the Trinity. It, it, we want to include, we want to reach out and, and rope in all the other people that we've loved, human beings who have accepted us in our way, and they will all be one, unified, enjoying fellowship, just as you and I, Father, and the Spirit enjoy fellowship together. So it all goes together, the vertical and the horizontal. Moreover, many divine commands, uh, we're answering the question, you know, what, uh, what does under, how does uh, not following God's commands undermine fellowship between human beings? A second reason might be that many of the commands in God's word are specifically uh, directed at, at, at behaviors on our part of peacemaking, of building harmony, being ministers of reconciliation, agents of God's love. So 1 John 2, 6, for instance, says, whoever claims he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? Which is to say, how did he behave? How did he conduct himself? Well, when faced with violence and hatred, Jesus didn't respond in kind. He did not respond in kind. He didn't come down from the cross and then erect a cross at Pontius Pilate's headquarters to hang his enemies on. Well, I'll show them. He didn't fight fire with fire. Instead, he forgave them, even to the point of dying for them. And he teaches us, his followers, to, quote, turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and to pray even for those who persecute us. And these kind of commands are, are simply not the logic of this world. This is the logic of heaven in action. But these kinds of commands are the only hope for human fellowship. Secondly, denying that we have sin is a great foe to genuine fellowship. It's a great threat, a challenge to any hope for having real fellowship. And so now we're going to see in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, that John is going to approach the question of humans' relationship to sin from a very different angle. Notice this. 1 John 1, beginning of verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So in a sense, I mean, this is a really different angle. He, he sort of turns on a dime right here in the middle of this paragraph with regard to how we should think about our sin, our relationship to our sin. Now he, in a sense, is warning against thinking that we can distance ourselves too far from sin. So this is a very counterintuitive thing to say on John's part. Somebody might be reading this and, and, and think, you know, well, I, I thought we were, we were supposed to avoid sin. We weren't supposed to have sin in our lives. And we clearly are, uh, from other things said in 1 John, even in this paragraph, we're to try to avoid sin, try our best to avoid it. We're definitely not uh, supposed to, as John puts it in 1 John 3, make a practice of sinning. He uses that phrase several times, which I think clears up what he's talking about here. If you just make a practice of sinning, just give into it, um, cease to think of it as a problem, then we're back to the first point in this lesson, disregarding God's uh, word, disregarding his commandments. But now John's saying something different, isn't he? To claim to have risen above sin completely, for a human being to claim that he or she has risen above sin completely, that it's not really a problem anymore, is itself sin. 
That's what he's saying right here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? To claim that I don't need to ask forgiveness, according to John, is to call God in heaven a liar, right? So one of the worst sins I can commit is to function as if I don't really have a sin problem. And remember how chapter two, verse five, I ask you to put, make a mental note of this. It said that we need to quote, keep his word to have a relationship with him. Well, notice that in uh, John 1.10 right here, he says, another thing that makes us not have his word is if we say we have not sinned, because when we do so, not only do we make him a liar, but his word is not in us. So it's a very interesting thing. He says actually two different things coming from two different angles about the way we should regard sin in our lives. If we deny that sin is a big problem in our lives, then we're ensuring that his word is not in us. Instead, verse nine says, we should own our failures, confessing our sins and trusting that Christ, our advocate and propitiation is quote, faithful and just to forgive us. Okay, but how does not taking my own sin seriously undermine fellowship. If we don't take our sin seriously, we undermine fellowship. How is that? Well, often while Christians pay lip service to their sin, I mean, every Christian is gonna confess sin in the abstract. They're gonna say something or think something along the lines of, well, of course I'm a sinner. It's like checking a box and moving on. That's not really how you know whether you're taking your own sin seriously. You're owning your own failures. Um, you know, there was some cartoon, I forgot what it was back in the uh, 50s or 60s. You know, we have met the enemy and he is us. I think this, this passage really underscores the truth of that, that our own, own worst enemy, our biggest problem isn't something in someone else or something out there. It's us. It's me. And I think many Christians pay lip service to sin. They confess it in the abstract, but they don't really regard their own sin as that big of a deal. Um, and they tend to see sin more as a problem of some evil other, you know, that's somewhere out there in the culture. Um, but sin is our problem. He's telling us that, First John, is sin is my problem. And if we resist that, if we push back against that, if we come across as holier than thou. And if we push back on this point long enough, we will just exude out of our pores uh, this sort of holier than thou air. And you tell me, how attractive is it to hang around a person who's holier than thou? Um, talk about breaking fellowship and you know, threatening oneness and unity. Um, start acting as if you're really above sin and see how many friends you have at the end of the day. What we do when we think that way, when we, re when we resist this point, we begin to create a dividing wedge at the most basic level of human existence. Because think about this, however different people may be, whether they're on opposite sides of an ocean or opposite sides of a political aisle or opposite sides of a church squabble or opposite sides of a marriage, there's one thing that the Bible says every single human being shares in common, and that's our status as sinners. It's the most democratic thing you could say. It's the great leveler. Each of us and every one of us is a sinner. Romans 1, if you recall, makes this great point. Paul, in writing um, to the church at Rome, 
begins in Romans one by saying, you know, it's sort of a history of paganism. And he says, this is what, this is where you get, this is where a society or a culture or a people uh, arrives if they quote, refuse to have God in their knowledge. And he's just basically saying, you know, the blindness was uh, horrific. Uh, the, the debauchery and dysfunction and destruction that it sows almost has no bounds. But then in chapter two of, of the same letter, he pivots and turns his sights on the people of God themselves. And he says, basically, don't get too high and mighty, because though you have been God's chosen people and you were baptized in the Red Sea, delivered from Egyptian slavery, brought to the land of promise and given the law and the prophets, you failed me, too. You're just as sinful as the people who never knew me. And I wonder if we hear ourselves in that text, in that rebuke. Here is a sample from Romans 2. He says, but if you call yourselves a Jew, God's chosen people, and you rely on the law and boast in God, right? We're defending God and godliness in our society. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, you then, he says in verse 21, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Verse 23, you who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he says something especially indicting in verse 24, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This people who were supposed to be a light to the nations are bringing reproach on the God that they were supposed to shine the light on. The Gentiles, you know, God being discredited among the nations, the Gentiles, because of their behavior. And then he sums it up in Romans chapter 3 verses nine and following. And I hope we all hear ourselves in these passages. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Are we American Christians any better off? Why would we be different from the chosen people of God? No, not at all, Paul might say. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, your version may say Jews and Gentiles, which is basically saying humanity, all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. No one really seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Are we exempt from that? That would be an audacious thing to say or conclude. So what I'm trying to say here is that fellowship is a tender plant. It's a tender plant. It's a little sapling. It, it's one of those little vegetables or herbs you buy, you know, in the first days of spring when you're going out to the plant nursery and the thing's super tender, but there's so much hope because the sun's shining, uh, the snow has melted, you know, daffodils are pushing up through the ground, the birds and, and, and bees are swarming all around outside. Take this tender plant and imagine that that's fellowship. When you and I choose self-righteousness over confession, control over vulnerability, Power over weakness. We are poison, pouring poison on the roots of this tender plant. And if we could just see ourselves the way God sees us, sinners in need of grace, that's how he sees every human being, then, then we'd see that what we all have in common vastly exceeds whatever might separate us. In 1 John 2, just a few verses later in verse 2, he says this, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins, not for ours only, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you see how there's, there's supposed to be a commonality, a, a, even a solidarity, weirdly, in our sinfulness? This is a universal problem. It's not just for us. It's for the whole world. We all are in the same boat. Um, so that's the second point. Denial of sin, like disregard for God's commands, is a great foe of fellowship. Finally, disdain for others. Disdain for other people. 1 John 2, 7 and 8 is going to use the same language of darkness and light that we see all woven throughout uh, 1 John 1. That language is going to continue, but now with a more specific context in view. And that context is love for one another. Read with me in 1 John 2, verse 7. Beloved, he says, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. And that old commandment, no doubt, is the commandment to love. Love God and love a neighbor. <clears throat> so he says that's an old commandment. But he says in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is in Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I want you to hear John, John R.W. Stott again as he talks about this statement in 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> he says this, the idea of love in general was not new, but Jesus Christ invested it in several ways with a richer and deeper meaning. First, it was new in the emphasis he gave it, bringing the love commands of Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18 together and declaring that the whole teaching of the law and the prophets hung upon them. Secondly, it was new in the quality he gave it. A disciple was to love others, not just as he loved himself, but in the same measure as Christ had loved him with selfless self-sacrifice, even unto death. Thirdly, it was new in the extent he gave it, showing in the parable of the Good Samaritan that the neighbor we must love is anyone, anyone who needs our compassion and help, irrespective of race and rank and includes even our enemy. Matthew 5.44. It is a new teaching for the new age which has dawned, new because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining already. This charge to love all is part and parcel of the new age, a new commandment for a new age which is broken into the world with the death and resurrection of Jesus and which we are to embody. He says this is true in him, but also in you, that's us. Why? Because the darkness is already passing away. It's not gone all the way, but it's passing away. And the true light is already beginning to shine. So the charge to love all is simply at the heart of being new creation people. It should be true in us just as it is true in Jesus since we are part of his new creation light, which has already begun to shine in this dark world. But what if God's people, <clears throat> those who are, who are ostensibly the light, don't look any different than the old, hate-filled, strife-torn darkness all around us? Well, I'll tell you what will happen. Fellowship will fail because fellowship is a product of the light, and it comes from nowhere else. Darkness, on the other hand, is the enemy of fellowship. It's where fellowship goes to die. It's where God isn't. This is why a radical love for other people is so important. It doesn't matter what we say or claim, right? First John says that over and over again. 
If we fail to love others, we remain in darkness, not the light. 1 John 2 verse 9 now says this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So beginning with our brother and sister, but extending to the Samaritan, to the tax collector and sinner, and to whomever else our generation has deemed the outcast du jour, the enemy of the moment. We must shine the light of love like Jesus. If, however, we hold other people, people made in God's very image, in disdain, we will look like chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not even know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. These last couple of phrases, walking in darkness, not knowing where we're going, blinded in our eyes to even determine the right path from the wrong path. One could make a decent argument, in my opinion, that nationally, this is where we have brought ourselves. We're walking in darkness. We're unable to navigate. navigate. Darkness has blinded our eyes. And the only way out of this quagmire, the only way, is Jesus Christ, the true light, the source of all genuine fellowship. Let us, his church, model for those around us this beautiful possibility. Thanks a lot.